G'day everybody, Matt Ellis with you for the latest edition of the Cricket Library podcast and today we get to hear the David Hussey story. Oh, what a little ripper! That one's Michael, the fellow bold, it's called David. The Hussey brothers have a great Melbourne moment. Hussey to Hussey, this is like a backyard. And you're right there, the crowd are very happy with this. Uh, the home crowd for David Hussey, the adopted home crowd. In the air it goes, it's long, it's very long. What a gutsy shot at this stage of the innings. Fantastic, David Hussey has really got the crowd here at the MCG rocking. From playing in the backyard to playing on the big stage of the MCG, it's time to sit back, relax and enjoy the David Hussey story on the Cricket Library podcast. It's a very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast, David Hussey. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure, Matty. Yeah, look forward to today. Yeah, always, always good to to start with your love of the game. We we have a, a diverse range of guests on the show, and really interested to know for you where where was the fire lit? You you're still involved in cricket to this day. Where did it all begin for David Hussey? Well, probably like most kids uh, throughout the world, um, I started off in the backyard uh, just with my older brother Michael. Um, yeah, we played backyard test matches, but probably the, the first love was watching Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, uh, Greg Chappell on the tally, and then sort of try to replicate them uh, out in the uh, the backyard with my brother. And yeah, well, I would like to say we we played in the, uh, with the right spirit of cricket in mind, but um, we were actually terrible, too competitive, and uh, generally ended up in fights. So <laughs> yeah, what well, wasn't the, the, the best childhood, but I, I guess it's sort of. Um, helped us uh, with our competitive nature when we grew up uh, later on and, and fulfilled our dreams of playing uh, cricket at the highest level. Sounds a little bit like my older brother and I. Now, Michael <laughs> Michael mentions in his book that he had to kind of initially sort of bribe you uh, by letting you bat first. Is, is that true that, that you, you kind of had, had a, a little bit of a, an early win there in that you got to, got to have a hit first? Yes, it is true, 100% true, but I was more clever than Michael because I knew that he wanted to desperately play, and so if I sort of, and I wanted to play as well, but I knew if I sort of held back my enthusiasm to play at the back, that I'll always get the opportunity to, to bat first. But regularly it backfired, Matty, because I'd get out pretty much in the first 10 balls because he was older and faster, and uh, yeah, we used to use a taped up tennis ball, and he used to get me out for fun. <laughs> and I used to probably cheat as well and by saying that I didn't hit it when I did and uh, or, no, nah, I missed the stumps and actually um, took the, the bales off sort of thing and uh, therefore once I was actually dismissed, I ended up bowling in for hours, which yeah, was, wasn't wasn't great. Um, everybody knows you either you, you want to bat for a long period of time and I ended up bowling for, for hours on end. But in all in all, it was uh, bloody good fun and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed my, my childhood uh, back in Perth with my, my brother and my two sisters. Yeah, and um, talk about your your first taste of of junior club cricket. Do you remember much about what it was like? You, you, you've transitioned from playing these backyard test matches where you're emulating your heroes to actually join a local cricket club and put on the white uniform and, and, and play in a team for the first time? 
Well, I more remember probably Mike making his uh, club debut for Whitford um, and scoring some runs and think, geez, you know, I was probably envious and, and wanted to uh, replicate him, him and his performances. So in the under 12s, uh, unfortunately, um, our parents didn't let us play junior, junior cricket. So we had to start at under 12s. And um, I, I remember my first game, uh, I, I think I batted, I think I got about four runs and, and got hit for a it felt like none for 300 off my bowling. So I didn't think it was going to be a great future in playing cricket, but it's something that you, you, you love and you, you want to hang out with your friends. And, uh, yeah, something that I'm really happy that I stuck stuck at uh, for my entire life, really. Yeah, yeah. And and you, you play some representative stuff. And my understanding is sort of when you broke in, in those junior representative pathway teams, you were predominantly a bowler. Is that correct? Yeah, I was an off-spinner. Um, even even playing uh, a district cricket for Wanneroo, I was more of an off-spinner who could bat, say, seven, eight or nine, um, bat pretty low and just try and help out the tail with some extra runs. Uh, probably more so a bit of a cowboy as a batter, like just try and <laughs> hit as many runs as I possibly could before they got me out. Um, but yeah, predominantly an off-spinner, which I really enjoyed bowling and I had a really good uh, off-spinning coach in Brett Mulder who used to play a bit for WA and um, yeah, he, he was excellent to deal with, an excellent coach and he knew my limitations, he knew my strengths and, uh, yeah, something I really enjoyed working with him Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday nights before the weekend of cricket and lucky enough to get picked in um, the under-17s and, and under-19s as an off-spinner. But I, I think the, the state coaches in WA realised that I wasn't wasn't ever going to make it as an off-spinner and uh, I'd had to improve my batting in, in order to uh, make it at the next level in, in shield cricket. Uh, was there a young leg spinner around at that time that turned out to be a pretty handy batter as well? <laughs> yeah. Actually, the current head coach of Victoria, Chris Rogers, um, he was the first choice leg spinner in the uh, in the WA and the 17s team, and I was the, the first choice off spinner. But he made the first team, and uh, I was relegated to the 13th man. So I, I think we both realised that we had to do a lot of work in our batting in order to make it to the next level. And fortunately, Chris went on, and he, he had the grit and determination to uh, to play at the highest level, and he worked incredibly hard to uh, to play Test cricket. And I'm glad he did. He achieve his goal, which, uh, like every, every, anybody does who wants to grow up and play Test cricket for Australia, that, that's the ultimate goal. And he did it, which is it's a great story. Yeah, it certainly is. And you both end up in Victoria. Now, how did, how did that happen for you in terms of where were you at in life and what sort of led to your decision to, to head over to play in Melbourne? Uh, it's a long story, um, which I'll try and keep it reasonably brief. Uh, I was at university in Perth, living at home, having the best life. My mum pretty much did everything for me. I lived down the beach, so I was pretty much down the beach every day and doing 12 hours, of con- 12 contact hours at university per week. So it was a pretty cruisy life and working part-time, which I was really, really enjoying. And then um, out of the blue, I got a call from the Pran Cricket Club in Melbourne um, asking whether I'd like to come over and and uh, try my luck playing for Pran and, and trying to play for Victoria. And to be fair, I didn't really give it much credence. I was thinking, nah, my life's pretty good in Perth. Um, why would I do this? And I ended up sitting down with my parents and asking them what, for some advice whether I should do this or not. And they said, well, why wouldn't you think about it more deeply? And it's a pretty good opportunity. Melbourne's a big city. You know, it could really further your um, your working life. I don't think they had too much, too much confidence in me uh, playing professional cricket. So... Um, end up uh, entertaining the idea and conversations sort of escalated and fortunately uh, at the end of the uh, WA season um, we had our exit interviews and we had the, the 
Lane Clark was the head coach who was outgoing and Michael Little was the new coach coming in and he sat me down and um, gave me this sort of a timeline of playing um, state cricket for WA and being the sort of the, the bold, brash youngster and impatient youngster that I was. It was more, I've got this opportunity um, to go to Melbourne and play. What, what would you do? And I'll be forever thankful for Michael Letter because um, he was very upfront and very honest and he said, mate, I'll I would take the opportunity if I was you. I'd, I'd head over there, but bear in mind you can always come home. You might get a few one-day games here for WA, but you're going to get more opportunity in, in Melbourne because the WA squad was uh, chock full of talent and all these players playing for Australia, and, and the depth was just paramount at that stage. So my blitter said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll probably take it up, and and good luck, go well." But you can always come home, and I'll be forever grateful for that honesty. And, yeah, made the decision to move over to, to Melbourne and um, yeah, the rest is history. It's probably ugly the, the best decision or best professional decision I've ever made. Yeah, and it's not not like you, you, you were an overnight success in Melbourne. You had to work really hard to break into that Victorian team. Probably about, would have been about 18 months of, of playing Premier Cricket before you, you, you get your Shield call up? Yeah, bang on. Um, so when I first moved over, there was no promises. Um, I got to meet the uh, the then head coach of Victoria, John Scholes, and he said, look, if you do well um, in Premier Cricket, that'll um, be able to get some second living games. If you do well in seconds and there's an opportunity um, above, like players aren't performing, um, you'll be there and thereabouts. But bear in mind, you're an interstater, so you will have to do more than the local boys, mm. which for me was more, well, that's a challenge, um, and I like sort of proving people wrong. So... It was probably just the, the the motivation that I needed to to uh, outperform everybody else. And the first season I was terrible. Um, I didn't perform very well for Paran. Uh, I was cold. I was homesick, and probably wasn't the right fit for me at the time. But um, fortunately, the parents were very strong and said, "No, no, you can't just give it six months. You got to like give it at least two two to three years before you come home." Yeah. And fortunately, they they gave me that sound advice and. Um, Second year, I ended up doing a, a proper pre-season and whilst working, so wake up at six in the morning, go to the gym, six or seven, and then go off to work after that and then try and do your fitness around lunchtime and, and you still work after work, um, which I really enjoyed. It was uh, it was unstructured. It was, um, I had to do it all myself. It wasn't um, turning up to a professional environment and having coaches at my beck and call. It was more, you have to organise this yourself with, with your old club teammates and Ended up reaping the benefits and scored a few runs and um, got picked to play uh, very much later on in that year and something that I really cherish now, seeing all the work that went into actually getting that first opportunity to play and yeah, something I'm very grateful for. And a bit of a precursor, you get some runs uh, in a match against England A with a lot of players that went on to terrorise the Australians in 05. Uh, what, what did it mean to you to be able to, to, to get those sort of runs on the MCG, did did that help you know that you weren't far away? Not so much that wasn't far away because at that stage, the um, Victoria had a new coach, Mick O'Sullivan, so there was a bit of a transition happening. But I remember thinking, uh, fortunately, I get to play at the MCG, which is a huge bonus. Like, just drive down the car park and you, the hairs at the back of your neck stick up. So that was a huge bonus. But then also get to play against, um, well, they turned out to be some English English cricket's greatest ever players. So, and score a few runs with, against them in the second innings. Um, it was more of a belief that, oh, well, actually, I can play at this level. Like, they're England's future test players. So, if I score runs against them, well, I should be able to play shield cricket because that's a step uh, down from the international arena. But so it more gave me the belief that I can actually play at the next level. And 
Um, but at that stage, Victoria had some very, very fine players playing, and I thought the opportunity might not come at that stage, but fortunately it did a few games or a few months later on. And, and what do you remember about the, the call-up? Was there much fanfare around it? Did you did you have a call? Um, do you remember the call? Uh, I, I do remember the call, per se, but um, I just remember David Hooks calling to say, um, you're in, you're in a bat, I think it was six, Um just try and replicate your premier form, your second eleven form in, in the game against New South Wales. Um, they got all the big stars playing, um, but remember, and I still use this um, comment today: play the ball and not the man. That's all I remember really from from the call. And I went out to uh, play and found myself a first slip and ended up dropping Steve War on four, and he went on to make <laughs> 111. So, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a great debut put it that way, um, but one I'll never forget because what it actually made me realise that. Nothing's, everything's, you can't take anything for granted. So whatever you put in, you you definitely get out. And uh, yeah, I was probably at my lowest step on day one and just, and then thinking, right, I owe the team 207 runs, so better get to it. And I think I got seven or eight in in my, in our first innings and we ended up getting first innings points, which I was wrapped about because we ended up stopping New South Wales getting any uh, points in that game, which was a really good feeling. And yeah, fortunately, I was, I was very happy to play in the next game as well because I probably didn't deserve to get selected again after that first performance. And the the 03-04 season's a great one. Uh, Victoria lift the Sheffield Shield and, and a game in that season against New South Wales uh, up in Newcastle. You, you get 51 in the first innings and then, then you're asked to chase 450-plus in the second innings. A, a double century uh, at any level is outstanding but for you to do it in, in this arena against against the new south wales team uh and to do it at nearly a runner ball 212 off 218 balls uh, can you give us your, your your reflections on on that success yeah it was a well it was a utopia game really um you're playing against all the, the New South Wales stars, Slater, the two War Brothers, Brad Haddon, um, Simon Cadditch is a good friend, Stuart McGill. Um, yeah, so it was an uh, unbelievable uh, experience to play against them first and foremost. But then we were in really good form at that stage. I don't think we'd given a point away to any other team in, in the competition. We had really good fast bowlers, good batters, Matthew Elliott, Brad Hodge, Jason Arnberger. So we had some really good players. Um, so I knew it was going to be a, a, a really good contest. And you always... It was an unspoken uh, goal, but every time you played against New South Wales, you um, you sort of get yourself up for the, the contest because we perceive them as uh, as equals to us, the two two biggest states playing against each other. Um, and I remember thinking, I got LBW first innings for 50, and I was thinking, I've just left 100 out there. Like, it was such a poor dismissal. Um, I was just poor technique. My mind was confused. And I'm thinking, right, I've got to really got to make the most of it in the second innings. The pitch is flat. Um, or easy pace, I probably should say. The outfield was just rocket fast. So anything that passed into was for it at all times. And the way New South Wales play the game is they really attack and don't send too many um, outfielders out whilst the quicks are on. So it was really good fun to play. And then they set us 450 in the second innings to win. And Dave Hook said, right, this is easy. We set the game up 250 over comps and we get 200. Uh, loss of, oh, I think it was two or three wickets in the... Um, in, in the first 50 overs, in the second 50 overs, we, we get 255 and we, we score at four and a half and over and it's, it's easy, okay? And I just remember walking out of this meeting that Hooks has just lost it. Like, there's no <laughs> chance of us chasing 455, but 
the way he simplified everything was like, well, hang on, we could probably actually do this. We just got to keep wickets in hand. And as I said before, the, the pitch was a very easy pace. The outfield was very fast and they were a tiring, tiring attack. So I thought, you know, we're a sneaky chance. And I think Brad Hodge got a few runs too. And um, yeah, Shane Harwood came out and hit, hit the winning runs. He played uh, the leg spin better than anyone, better than Kevin Peterson. And uh, yeah, it was a, a great celebration and one of the best wins I've ever been a part of. Yeah, and and getting getting that uh, dominance in Shield cricket, uh, a, a really good sort of era where yourselves, New South Wales, Queensland, all sort of uh, very strong, very strong teams. You had some great battles with Queensland. I think the three Shield titles you won were all against Queensland. I wanted to ask you about um, 08, 9 and, and 09, 10, you, you, you go back to back, uh, and, and you have an impact in both of those, those final scoring, scoring runs in each of them to win one shield is a, a massive achievement. What does it take culture wise to, to get a group to go back to back at that level? Oh, hell of a lot of work that goes in, involved. Um, Everyone just think, thinks it's the final 11 that actually plays and, and, and wins the game or, or draws the game in order for you to, to um, host the Shield, or to um, lift the Shield, lift the Sheffield Shield. But it's a whole squad because there's injuries, there's international selection, there's lots of form. Um, there's just a whole host of uh, things that go on. So it definitely takes the whole squad. But just remember the, uh, the back-to-back was more about putting egos in check and, and do your role for your team. Greg Ship was a master manipulator, so... If you ever got too far ahead of yourself, uh, he'd always bring you back down to worst. But all, equally, if you're low on confidence, he'd always find a way to uh, build your confidence back up in order for you to uh, contribute to the team's success. And we had some phenomenal players who were just sort of close to the international arena, but not actually quite there at that stage. And um, yeah, we just had a really good squad that really wanted to play not only for each other, but also um, be the best squad uh, throughout um, the, the nation at that stage. And going back to back and, and to contribute in those shield finals in, in score of um, in scoring runs is, is a bit of a bonus because in the first ever shield final I played in I think I was the, the lowest score in, in our team and I think I made a pact that I was never going to be the lowest score ever again because it's rather embarrassing <laughs> and and to have success with with your old WA mate uh, Bucky Rogers uh, <laughs> big partnership for you guys two two early wickets in that one and and you guys kind of resurrect things. Yeah, it was um, an interesting Shield final that because that was played at the uh, the City Power Centre at Junction Oval in, in St Kilda, and um, we I think we won the toss and batted on a bit of a juicy pitch. And I was thinking, oh, I'll probably bowl first on this, and <laughs> we lost a couple of, couple of early ones, and then yeah, I walked out to bat and almost fell down the stairs. Um, going out, I'm thinking, right, come on, switch on here. Like obviously nervous, your feet aren't moving, but it's even to get out in the middle of the field and. Just remember asking Chris, "Hey, what, what's going on out here?" And um, normally you don't really hear what's going on; you just sort of sort of lock yourself in. But just remember hearing everything, all the instructions that Hope is going into me. Just make sure you get yourself outside the line. He's trying to get your LB bowls. Yep, cool. And I just remember, right? Let's lock in together and let's set ourselves up to bat the whole day. And um, yeah, fortunately we did. We had a really good partnership. And, um, yeah, I think it went a long way to actually uh, drawing that game of cricket because, uh, truth be told, if uh, we had a set. Queensland 600 runs in, and they they could have had six or seven days to, to score these runs. I reckon they would have got on that pitch. It was pretty uh, flat and, and easy pace by the end of that time. Yeah, yeah. And um, moving into your international cricket, you, you get to make your T20 debut against the at the time 
world champions India. Uh, you don't get to bat, unfortunately, but you you pick you pick up the wicket of MS Dhoni on on debut. Yeah, it was a bit of a bonus. <laughs> um, I didn't expect a I didn't expect a bowl. I thought I'd bat and uh, maybe try and um, kite a few into the stands by the end of the uh, the twenty overs, but. Unfortunately or fortunately, um, yeah, I'm not really sure, but uh, we end up um, having a, a comfortable win and uh, I think Hodge hit the winning runs, which is great. Um, we end up beating them easily in front of 84,000 people. It was a really good um, an experience to, to be part of because my then girlfriend, my, my wife now, she didn't think that cricket was such a good game at that stage and she didn't think it was a very well or a big, big followed game in cricket and then she turned up to the MCG with 84,000 screaming people and very, very loud. And uh, she thought, oh, actually, cricket's quite a good game and it's very well followed throughout the world. So it was, uh, yeah, a wonderful experience. And all I remember is that Michael Clark getting this unbelievable run out early and, and just thinking, geez, the intensity just goes to a new level from playing domestic cricket to international cricket. So the intensity and, and skill skill level has to improve in order to uh, to be to be at your best and, and perform at your best uh, at, at all times. And that's probably the big biggest takeaway I found from uh, playing international cricket. And and that era for T20 is still relatively new. You guys had your nicknames on the back of the shirts. Um, <laughs> yeah. that, that, it was all a bit of fun. Um, that game also, um, there's a great image of Adam Vogus bowling when he's on a hat-trick there and there's like seven guys around the bat. Um, any other any other things that stand out from, from that opening game for you? Um, all I remember is that the noise that emanated out of that stadium. I was doing it mid-off or mid-on um, to Nathan Bracken, who was bowling, and Michael Clark was trying to get my attention, and he's waving to me, and he's talking to me, but I couldn't hear him. Like, it was probably 40 metres away, and I just couldn't hear him. Normally at a Shield game, you could hear him, like, crystal clear, but that's, that's probably the only thing I can really remember. And then, and bowling as well. I bowled to MS Dhoni, and I just got this feeling that he's going to try and hit me for six sixes in this over, and... The pitch was really old and used, and um, it's pretty hard to hit dead straight at the MCG on a, on a used pitch. And the square boundaries are like 400 metres long, so I was thinking if he can try and hit, hit me for six out the, the square boundaries, it's a pretty good hit. So I ended up getting him deep court at deep mid-wicket, um, about 70 metres short of the boundary. And like I said, it was a monster hit. But yeah, those are the couple of things that I probably remember the most about the uh the T20 game against uh, India at the MCG. And breaking into the the 50 over team, you do that later in in 2008 debut against the the West Indies. This time you do get a bat, you get a half century, and it, it's a one run win. How how are the emotions um, ticking that one off? Well, firstly, I probably didn't deserve to make that tour. I think I averaged about six or seven for Victoria that year in, in one-day cricket. So I was very blessed to be uh, on the the right sort of selection that trip and ended up being 12th man or 13th man for the, pretty much uh, the first three games. And then um, inexplicably, they made a change uh, and I subbed in for a uh, good friend, Cameron White, at the stage. So it was a little bit awkward there. Yeah. And then I didn't sleep that well that night because you, you're making your debut and um, the great Ricky Ponning gets to present your cap for me, and which was awesome, awesome experience. And I was really just enjoying the morning. And then Mike Young, the fielding coach, he walked over and said, hey, youngster, come here. And there's one thing getting picked. Another thing, hey, you've got to perform at the biggest level as well. Um, you've, got to, you've got to turn them on. Uh, you've got to turn, turn, on, turn it on or something like that. And I was like, oh, God, just pile a bit more pressure on me. Sort of thing. And, <laughs> 
Fortunately, I got to play with Andrew Simons that day, and he made me feel really, really special and um, yeah, part of the group, which was excellent. And went up uh, yeah, making a decent total and come down the last over. And Shane Watson bowled this unbelievable over in order for us to um, to uh, to win the game. And I just remember sitting back, exhausted, um, just so tired, mentally drained, and just thinking, "Thank goodness that we won the game," because uh, that made us four nil winners uh, of the of the, um, the tour. And they couldn't beat us in that, that, that tour. And I just remember thinking, why? Well, could have a drink and uh, just sort of celebrate each other's company because it was just uh, a moment you'll never forget because uh, yeah, it was just a great, great win, great team win. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And as far as your international career goes, you, you play a lot of games in, in short format cricket. Uh, your 100 against Scotland, where, where does that kind of stack up for you? Um, uh... Well, I probably didn't deserve to play that game either. Um, <laughs> I wasn't. The, um, it was actually a precursor to the two twenty games we we're playing against England, and um, because we we're coming out of out of, out of our winter, um, Tim Nielsen, the coach, and Ricky Ponting said, "Well, how about we play a T twenty team in this comp, this game against um, Scotland, and therefore they can get the the match practice or the needed match practice in order to prepare for the T twenty games." and so by default, I got to bat four against the Scottish team and end up scoring a few runs, which was which was excellent. It's, it's always nice to make hundred and contribute to a team win. Um, but yeah, this was, was sort of like a, a bittersweet feeling, like <clears throat> I should be playing far better and far more consistently for the Australian team in, in order to keep my place in the team rather than being the inconsistent player that I was. So still very happy to score a hundred for Australia in, in in that fact. So. And and playing in the UK in general, how how would you assess the impact of of playing in the UK on on you as a cricketer? How how did it help you uh, develop your game? Loved it. Um, learned so much about it. Uh, mentally draining, physically draining. Um, but you learn so much about your batting game. For example. Uh, I think it was the first or second year and Ian Blackwell, left-arm spinner from Somerset, was bowling over the wicket to me into the rough and um, as a right-handed player, he should just pat it away. But I've never experienced this tactic before uh, in my life and ended up saying to the um, the senior pro at that stage was Darren Picknell and said, oh, he was a left-hander. Is there any chance that you could face um, the left-arm off spinner who's bowling over the wicket to me and then you can just get outside the line and, and use your pad? And I'll take the quicks at the other end until they have a spell, you know. And he said, no, mate, you've got to learn how to play this way. I said, well, teach me. He said, just pat him away. And so I tried to pat him away and I think one hit the top of my pad, went to my grill. Next one just missed the gloves. And so I thought, bugger this, I'm just going to get hurt here. So <laughs> I started started trying to defend it and ended up defending and nicking to slip and walking off. And ended up, the head coach came to me and said, what are you doing? You've got to practice patting the ball away or you're just going to get out straight away. And so... From then on, I was like, right, get to the nets and just practice patting the ball away from out of the rough. And sure enough, they, um, the left-arm spinners into the rough, they generally, four or five balls they tried and they, they go back around the wicket and they bowl on the good side of the pitch. So um, that was just one, one example of learning how to play difficult spin on, on a day four pitch and um, yeah, something that I still try and teach uh, kids today and, and how to play in different conditions and, and how to play in different situations and um, yeah, it's a, a legacy that hopefully will get passed on from, from generation to generation. Yeah, and and speaking of that sort of uh, passing on of information uh, 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 among players, the influence of T20 cricket around the world, has that certainly helped fast track the share of knowledge and the share of um, 
cricket acumen, I guess, amongst players and coaches around the world. Yeah, and also has sort of broken down a lot of barriers for, like when you play international cricket against other teams, you sort of don't really know the opposition that well, as in enough to say hello and have a drink with them at the end of the game, at the end of the uh, the tour, but you don't really get to know them or you don't really want to get to know them either. At least if you're playing in the IPL or, or any other franchise team, you get to sit down with them day in, day out, and you find out um, what makes them tick, and you find information out about how to play in certain games, certain ga- uh, grounds, certain situations, and um, you think, wow, I can really implement that into my game as well. So you get sort of inside information about um, yeah, different countries and, and what makes them tick and, and how to play against them, et cetera, et cetera, sort of thing. So playing in the IPL is uh, a wonderful experience, and I think it just sort of fast-tracks everybody's uh, learning about T20 cricket and how to play the perfect game of T20 cricket, which it sort of only stays in vogue for, say, one to two years. Um, then it's sort of uh, the evolution of T20 cricket and the tactics that changes um, feels like on a year-by-year year basis. It's, it's uncanny and, and phenomenal, really. Yeah, and what would you say was the most enjoyable thing for you? What was the most fun part about playing IPL cricket? Uh, well, I, I played six and a half years of IPL cricket. Um, I really enjoyed, uh, mate, the pressure probably playing playing in the IPL. Like, you're highly paid um, and every part of the team is looking for you to, to score runs. I really enjoyed that pressure and you got to play for the team um, and really work with uh, the local players. You work with the other overseas players and you really got to put your ego in, in check. Um, so that's probably the best thing about playing in India, but you get to travel all over the country, you play on the fast bouncy wickets in Mahali, you get to play in the spinning pitches down in Chennai, um, the good cricket pitches on the small boundaries in Bangalore, um, yeah, just sort of enjoying every little, every state um, and their little differences of, of their trainings and get to meet some really interesting people and, and, and find out, uh, yeah, just how everybody ticks and how everyone everybody else plays their cricket and it's just a, a lifelong experience that uh, you, you'll never forget. Touring India is a, a wonderful, wonderful experience and I recommend it to everybody. And, and your transition out of cricket, you mentioned your coach, Greg Shippard, earlier. Um, you, you got a good relationship with him. You're coming to the back end of your first-class domestic career in Australia. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you, you moved from being a player into working in a coaching capacity and uh, into the role that you're in now? Yeah, so when I was finishing up from cricket, uh, Sean Graff, and, and um, he's the general manager of cricket at that stage, him and um, Greg Shippard got together and said, oh, would I like to be the batting coach for uh, the second 11 and um, and the senior team and therefore learn on what it takes in that being a head coach. So obviously they, um, they saw something in me that might want to be a, a coach and I'll be forever grateful for that because the skills they uh, I learned by osmosis was, and just by watching and and um, and just taking everything in was just phenomenal, really. Um, yeah, it was just one of those things which I sort of just fell into and yeah, always been sort of that person where a door closes and another door opens pretty quickly. So long may that continue and something I'll be forever grateful for. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed working with Greg Shippard. He's a people's person, um, always saw the best in people. But like I said before, he um, when everybody was uh, down or or he, he knew how to uh, lift their confidence up, but also 
bait people if they were uh, too far ahead of themselves. He sort of uh, dragged them back into line pretty quickly and uh, always got people playing for the team, which is uh, a great trait to have. And your involvement now in Victorian cricket, can you give us a little bit of a snapshot of, of what your role involves and um, and how you see yourself uh, going forward? What, what's what's the next phase of, of life for David Hussey looking like? Oh, wow. What an awful question to ask. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, right now I'm ahead of male cricket, so I run Sheffield Shield, second 11, Marsh Cup cricket, uh, 17s and 19s cricket for Victoria and... Um, yeah, we're going through a bit of a transition period at the moment. We've got some really young fast bowlers coming up, uh, young spin bowlers coming through the, the ranks. So my goal is to get them or to allow them to achieve their goals of playing for Australia. And I do that by providing the best environment possible for them to work as hard as they possibly can, learn off some of the best coaches in the world and uh, have them ready to play international cricket um, and set themselves up for success, really. But also have them uh, ready to play franchise cricket too, um, if it, can, if it can happen as well, um, for example, like a Matt Short, uh, he I think he had three days to get ready to play in the 100 um, he, as a replacement player and he was ready to go. So have this environment there, everybody can learn and, and be the best version of themselves they can possibly be and, and play the game that they love and the game that I love and uh, all over the world and achieve what they want to achieve. And um, yeah, hoping to keep working with Chris and Ben Rohr and Adam Griffith and Craig Howard for and Graham Manute and an excellent general manager, and hopefully I can work with them for a, a couple more years left. And um, then after that, I'm not sure what's, what's going to happen next. Maybe it's time to hand the reins over to somebody else that has different beliefs and different um, different goals that they want to achieve out of the game for, for Victorian cricket. And and definitely, uh, I, I like your point there around uh, producing Australian cricketers. You mentioned yourself early on, it was the, the lilies and the marshes that you're watching on the TV for young kids, they're, they're, they're seeing a Matt Short excel in Australian colours and they know that he was a Victorian, uh, he is a Victorian, it, it, it does provide that aspirational element. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. I just remember um, I was at the Boxing Day test and I think, um, it was, I think it was Brad Hodge playing at the Boxing Day test and the, the noise that emanated out of that stadium for a Victorian player to, to play was just incredible. Like, it was just unfounded. And it was something that always has stuck with me. I thought, right, I want to play in the Boxing Day Test. And unfortunately, that never happened. This wasn't quite good enough. But then seeing good friend Scotty Boland play at the uh, the Boxing Day Test and the noise that came from um, one of the stands when he was bowling was just incredible. And I was like, yeah, that's what Victorian cricket needs to do. We need to produce more Australian players. And not just the, uh, the one to two tests uh, Australian players, they need to be playing 30 to 40 test players um, playing for Australia and at the Boxing Day Test. We need two batters, we need a fast bowler and a spinner like Warney did and just and have these um, future Victorian players grow up and uh, idolising the match shorts, the Scott Bolands, the uh, Marcus Harris, uh, so to speak, and Will Potofsky, so to speak, and, and, and hopefully they can um, yeah achieve their goals um, or of playing Test Trio for Australia at the Boxing Day Test because that's what it's all about. You, you want to be motivating the next generation of uh, cricketers coming through. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we can't let you go without asking our our hardest-hitting question. Uh, if David Hussey could have a dream net session, you can invite <laughs> anyone you want. Uh, who, 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 are you, who are your three picks for, for a dream net? Oh, God, this is a really difficult question. So on short notice, I'd probably say Derek Jeter because 
I just love the way he carried himself for the New York Yankees for such a long period of time. Always played for the team, um, was a captain, great leader. Um, I just think he'd be a phenomenal person just to uh, side up next to and, uh, and A, show him our game of cricket, but also B, side up next to and just hear some of the stories and what makes him tick and what made him to be one of the best players uh, ever to play for the New York Yankees. Yeah, Number yeah. two would be um, Jerry Seinfeld. I think he'd be one of the best, uh, <laughs> best people just to side up next to, just to listen to him talk and, uh, and for humour value, really. And number three, Shane Warne. Um, he was just uh, he's one of the best. And, um, yeah, sadly, he's not around anymore. Um, a person who was uh, a great confidant, but also uh, he's just the world's greatest ever spin bowler. And uh, I don't think he'll ever be uh, another spin bowler like him ever again. So, yeah, he's sorely missed. And I think he'd be uh, a person that I'd love to spend another couple of hours with again because he's great company. Yeah, incredible legacy on the game, SKW, and um, just 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 quickly on on Shane, uh, the impact he had on on you as an individual. Um, any any reflections that that you'd like to share? Yeah, so Shane and I, um, I don't really know this, but I always felt that Shane always thought I was quite a good player or, or played the game the right way by taking the game on and trying to score runs. I always got that feeling that he really enjoyed the way I played the game. And then when I didn't do very well, he was reasonably tough on me, really hard. And I thought, oh, maybe he just doesn't like me sort of thing. So I went through this stage where I think I'm a good player. Oh, he doesn't like me. Um, and then I ended up playing county cricket against him. He played for Hampshire. I played for Nottinghamshire. And um, Hampshire were all over Nottinghamshire. And they were pretty much going to force a, a win at Trent Bridge. And I ended up making a few runs and causing uh, Hampshire to um, secure a draw, really. And we went at each other verbally on the field. And it was like two Australians, two ugly Australians going at each other verbally on the cricket field. And because Shane, where Shane is in the, in the world of cricket, where he, his stature is compared to my stature of being a D-class citizen in, in cricket, um, it was sort of like, hang on, how you, where, who is this young upstart having a crack at the world's greatest ever leg spinner, you know? And it was pretty bad. I ended up going downstairs after the game, after not secured a draw and trying to have a drink with him. And he said, nope. We're not drinking that. And he was devastated with me. Uh, we, we weren't good at all and ended up playing sure cricket that year with him. And uh, I ended up sort of sat down next to him and discussed it at length with him. And he said, oh, I just didn't realise, didn't really like the way we went about it. It was a really bad game of cricket. And, but I realised that you're a very good player. And he was probably one of my, my biggest supporters by the end of uh, my cricket life. So uh, mm. he's probably one of the ones who was always talking to the Aussie selectors saying, you should pick this guy. He's... He's talented, he's good, he plays the game the right way. So, yeah, we went through some ups and downs, but we, I think we had the mutual mutual respect for each other and um, well, I idolised him because he was one of the all-time greats. But I sort of came in and out of vogue with, with Warren in terms of my cricket. But, um, yeah, some, someone who I always went to for advice and how to play the game and what to do, with, whether as a player or as a coach. And um, he was just a very succinct person who uh, gave, yeah, succinct advice and this is what you've got to do, mate, and... Uh, yeah, it's going to be sorely missed. Yeah, absolutely. And and a regular selection on our um, Dream Net session, Shane Warne. Lots of people choosing him. <laughs> and I will say too, um, Derek Jeter uh, was was also on Chris Hartley's list. So no way. So there you go. Yeah, he had he had Warney, Derek Jeter, and um, RT Ponting. So <laughs> so so no room for for punter on your list. But I think Jerry Seinfeld. Had, would would be a very good little addition there. So be, be some excellent banter. Well, 
Thank you so much, David, for joining us uh, on the Cricket Library podcast. It's been a real thrill for me uh, to, to hear more of your story. I know our listeners will, will resonate with it and uh, wish you all the best with your work at Cricket Victoria and uh, look forward to seeing your career continue to blossom. Much appreciated, Matty. And for any young cricketers out there, especially from Victoria, come and play at the Boxing Day Test. That's the goal. Come and play at the MCG on Boxing Day. Great to have David Hussey as a guest on the Cricket Library podcast and great to hear that he's keeping that dream alive for the next generation of cricketers who are coming through the Victorian system at the moment. Well, a massive thanks to you as well, our loyal listeners. Without you, the podcast wouldn't be what it is today and we're very appreciative of every one of you who tunes in and if you're new to listening and this is the first episode you've heard make sure you check out the back catalogue make sure you hit the subscribe button you will definitely enjoy what we've got in that back catalogue and plenty more in the pipeline throughout the summer ahead so make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss out this has been Matt Ellis for the Cricket Library Podcast bye for now